0: Haze. Hope not hate are basically controlling Britain. Hope not hate, an alluring name for those more concerned about social justice than truth. things backwards, things backward thinking virtue virtue signalling fake news creators. Yeah. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to a, another one of the Hope Not Hate podcasts. Um, it's been a while since we've done one of these, um, where we talk to an author of a book or a historian about both the hist- historical and contemporary far right. And today's guest is, I think, our first returning guest. It's David Renton, who many of you will remember uh, was on the podcast a while ago talking about his book Never Again, about Rock Against Racism and the National Front and the Anti-Nazi League. Um, And he's back. He's back with a new book, um, The New Authoritarians. I've read it a couple of times now, I think there's loads of absolutely fascinating stuff in there and I think there's uh, this one's much more contemporary, we're talking about things that are happening right now and over the last few years. Um, so welcome back to the podcast, David. Oh, thanks so much, Joe. it's
1: an absolute pleasure to be back.
0: I wanted to start from the literally from the very beginning of the book, the first line in fact, um, as I thought it was quite a corker, it says, The right has changed, it has embraced the ideas of its outliers. Um, maybe you could give us a little bit of an overview about what this book's about, um, what what the kind of key argument is that you're trying to make?
1: OK, well, well the, the book's very much pitched at people who consider themselves anti-fascists and people who spent years, or, or, or maybe with John Morris, but who, who see it as, a, as their key part of their life to confront people who are at the, right, at the far right of the political spectrum. And essentially what the book argues is that we need to be looking a bit closer to the mainstream. You know, there have been all sorts of times in history, like, like, you know, last time I was on here, you said I was talking about the 70s. The 70s was a moment where the National Front seemed to be dragging Britain to the right. But right now, the people who are dragging Europe, Britain, the world to the right are at a different point at the political spectrum. They're a bit closer to the mainstream. They're the likes of Nigel Farage. They're the likes of Donald Trump. They're people who you couldn't, in a million years, say are fascists. You know, they don't have street armies. They don't try and um, attack Parliament. Um, but they're working in alliance with people further to the right and they're pulling politics right and the book's trying to focus on them work out what they stand for and how we can confront them
0: Brilliant, I mean that's kind of music to our ears, I remember when Hope Not Hate started talking about UKIP um, uh, when they kind of became a a major threat a few years ago and there was a lot of kickback saying this isn't the job of Um, anti-fascists you're supposed to be just looking at Nazis and I think there was a general discussion in the movement about whether or not we just shrink back and look at nazis and skinheads or whether or not we try and expand out uh, and face the mainstream so this book is kind of very very welcome in that sense i think it gives a really strong justification for a lot, a lot of what the anti-fascist movement's been trying to do um maybe actually the first place i mean we're, we're recording this just days after the european election um so if we're talking about this threat coming from slightly more the mainstream maybe you could just give us your thoughts on on the european elections both in the uk or europe where you think uh they what happened what's the threats we see
1: well, I mean, I think we've got to start by saying, and it's not a welcome thought, but, but they were really good elections for the parts of the right that I'm talking about. You know, the far right came top of the polls in France, in Italy, in Poland, and we can get on to how we characterise a Brexit party, but they won here. Um, and, you know, that, that's the starting point. Um, I suppose another interesting point is that the parts of the right which um, often um, on the left we focused on, you know, the street fighters, etc. They didn't have a good election. Maybe we will come on more to Britain and the difference between, say, the the Brexit party, how it's working now, and UKIP. You know, it's not not a surprise that um, the Brexit party outpolled UKIP by 10 to 1. And one of the reasons why it's not surprising, if you just look at the continent as a whole, this is the general pattern. The parties which have got some of the hint of fascism around them, the parties which have got street militia, did badly. Golden Dawn in Greece saw its vote shrink. Jobbik, which until recently had its own militia, they too saw their vote shrink. They're not where the action is right at the moment.
0: Brilliant. Let's go back to, I mean, uh, yeah, it's really, really interesting stuff. Maybe it's, at the end we can kind of talk a little bit more about the UK and where we see things right now. Um, I want to go back to the kind of the early sections of the book. Um, I think it's the first chapter or the second chapter where you talk about um, the changing kind of focus of the far right in terms of legacies, kind of shifting from this notion of the post-war period and the war as this kind of central element of their thinking to we're living in a post 9-11 world. You make a lot of emphasis on this being important. Tell us what you're talking about. Tell us why it's important.
1: Well, the, the comparison I had, I had in my head, because obviously I, I wrote this book um, at just the same time that I was working on the one on the 70s, and the comparison I had in my mind was with the 1970s. You know, if, if you were someone who came into the far-right 1970s essentially because you weren't political, essentially because you just wanted to beat up people of a certain colour, you wanted a legitimation for your political violence, you wanted something that you know to meet people who were like you but maybe a bit more worked out in what they thought, they, and therefore you, were going to be pulled towards fascism. Fascism was all around. It was in comics, it was in cartoons. You could see it in the physical infrastructure of buildings, which had still been destroyed and left standing there after the end of the Second World War. Run forward to today, and, and that's just not the intellectual um, landscape in which people grow up, it's not the environment which shapes them. And, and what, I, what I essentially what I argue is that the Second World War and its legacy has been shaped, it has been joined by and shaped by also the legacy of 9-11, the way in which vast parts of, of the political mainstream centre-right, even you know, Blair in the centre-left, just all sorts of political forces accepted the logic of this argument that essentially 9-11 showed that there was a civilizational crisis, that the, the West was at war with Muslims. And that's that, I'm, that I argue, is actually the context for, for, far, for, for, the, for the far right today, that relatively small parts of the forces that we face are shaped by the Second World War trying to emulate it or copy it. Far more they're shaped by this post-9-11 world.
0: Do you think that kind of understands the shift we've seen, certainly in the UK, but I think from a lot of the international far right, from a kind of a broader anti-immigrant politics to a much more specific anti-Muslim politics.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, again, the contrast from the 1970s. If if you if you if people go back and listen to the speeches of Martin Webster. You kind of feel like what he did every day in the morning before he got interviewed is he, he whipped out his copy of Mein Kampf, <laughs> read three or four pages, and then went off to interviews and kind of processed it back. You can actually re- you listen to his speeches, you can see you know, really recognisable notions um, of what, which go back straight to that point. Now, if you can compare it to um, if you can compare it to today that 's just not where they start from. People like Tommy Robinson, if you read his memoirs he 's absolutely insistent he, he doesn 't believe in the racial theory of history, all he wants to do is attack Muslims um, and you know that 's just one figure that that sort of journey is, is takes place across um, thinker of thinker activist after, after activists on the far right today
0: so that brings us on to um kind of if we're talking about the kind of the meat of the book I guess we're talking about mm. there's three there's three case studies at the center I guess there's the UK there's the US and there's France um, and you talk about them being quite pivotal moments obviously uh, and be, tell us why you picked those countries and tell us what's happening in those countries that made you think that those are the three to focus
1: on well I, I suppose there's two reasons one reason is just that um they have an ability to shape politics outside their borders far greater than many of the countries where the far right's organising. You know, the, the far right—it's um, really important in Hungary. and We could talk about how that's been built and how that works. And, and you know, you know, I, I, you know, there's all sorts of stuff that's being produced where people write seriously about the Hungarian experience. It's important, but but it's not something that's copied and imitated to the same extent as you know. If you by by contrast. Think about when Trump came in, think about how he's, he he has the ability of as President of the United States to shape and influence politics in other countries and to create imitators you know um, in Brazil um, you think about bolsonaro, you think about his the particular um, support he gives to um to, to quite specific things like um, his attacks on the environment, his ideas about moving the um, Israeli, um, the, the Brazilian embassy in Israel to Jerusalem, all of these ideas seem to ideas that he's copied from Trump. Trump creates direct imitators, and um, so one of it was just Britain, um, France, America, are essentially powers which have that reach to a much greater extent than anyone else. Um, but also, there's another thing which was that if you go back to 2016 17, which I do think was essentially a breakthrough moment for the international far right, it's a kind of there's a kind of um, there's a moment um, that's akin in its own way. The, the, the comparison people in the far right use is 1979 and 1918, the breakthrough that Reagan and Thatcher achieved for a different kind of right wing organising. And I think it's right that the number of election victories just had that effect. Um, they changed the political terrain also in like Austria, Holland, etc. So if you go back to to what was going on in Britain, um, the United States and France, um, for activists on the right... Who were involved in the middle of it? They had a notion it would be first Britain with Brexit, then America with Trump, and next Le Pen. That's how they saw it. And I wanted to sort of trace from that process. It's not like the it's not like the distant history, (laughs) but almost as a contemporary historian, I want to say, right, this is what happened. This is how these processes fitted together.
0: Um, Some people are going to ask. So you've got you know Trump, US. You know you can say right, hard right, far right, however you describe it. France, Le Pen. Far-right, however you describe it. Um, the UK with Brexit, are you saying that Brexit is far-right? Are you saying that it's, uh, you know, kind of, what are you... Why are you no, no, that no not about? at
1: all. I, mean, I, I really am not saying that Brexit in and of itself um, is a thing which is essentially left-wing or essentially right-wing. That That's not the point of the chapter. Um, the point of the chapter is, is, is different. It's first of all to trace how a set of far-right actors were shaped went into Brexit, particularly with with the notion of how they could use Brexit to change Britain. So I go back into the history of UKIP and its predecessors and and essentially try and set out what the model they had, why it's sensible to describe them as far-right. That's part of it. The other part of it is really trying to explain how Brexit energised the far-right. I'm quite open to, to someone putting an argument that say, you know, if Brexit had happened slightly differently, if, if Corbyn had won the 2017 election, we might look upon Brexit as something totally different. Yeah, whatever. You know, the book <laughs> isn't about Brexit. But what's unquestionably the case is if you look, for example, at the impact of Brexit on Donald Trump, it energised his campaign. Um It led to him getting Nigel Farage to a number of of speeches um, alongside him. It led to um, Trump saying, you know, repeatedly, I'm Mr Brexit. It led to Trump. You know, that's why um, days after Trump had been elected, Farage was invited to meet him in his horrible golden elevator. (laughs) It was because there was a sense that he'd done Trump a favour and that favour was being rewarded. Brilliant.
0: Actually, one of the things kind of when we're talking about the drivers of some of these phenomena, what's causing these things to happen you know you talk about 1617 as a breakthrough and um, one of the things I think is really interesting in this book is right now there's a lot of social scientists maybe that are making arguments that economics is not important ranging from some who say it's just not important at all, I think in like Calvin's new book White Shift or you know, uh, Goodwin's book about national populism, it's all about identity and culture and, and playing down economics, whereas you spend quite a lot of time in this book talking about the role that economics plays, that welfare state plays, capitalism more generally, um, and how the financial crisis, free trade, these are really mm. important things um, for understanding where we are. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why you kind of think that and whether or not you disagree with those people that are downplaying the economic elements?
1: Well, I I just think that's wrong, and I I think that that it misunderstands an important part of the process. Um, What I was really trying to look for is, you know, is there a a kind of similarity between um, between Trump's vote, between the Brexit vote, between the Pen's vote? And there are certain similarities, and and one of the particular similarities is that all these things have proved attractive to a group of people who really don't have a lot of money. You know, um, if you look at the median, um, the average Trump voter, they are about as rich as the average Democrat voter. They're marginally richer. But looking at the average conceals that, you know, there are a lot of Trump voters who are very rich indeed. But there are also a bunch of Trump voters who just aren't. And that's the same equally for, for Le Pen, with her support in, in large um, working-class areas of northern France. It's, it's the same in Brexit. And essentially, what I try and argue in that part of the book is that one of the reasons why people were attracted to these arguments is that there are groups of people who've been real losers in the last 10 years of uh, of capitalism. Say in Britain, there have been people who've really lost out very, very, very badly from austerity. There's lots and lots of research which shows, for example, that if you look at areas um, who've moved over to benefits, and so moved over to welfare benefits, and so because... Welfare benefits have been performed so fast over the last ten years. People have seen catastrophic declines in their living standards. If you try and match up, um, if you try and match up where those particularly sharp areas of declining living standards were, and you map that against Brexit, there's a, there's a strong correlation. You know, a key group of people who voted for Brexit were people who've been on benefits, suffered really hard and were therefore amenable to an argument that that their problems, there was some sort of connection between their problems in terms of getting benefits and the right-wing explanations for those problems, i.e. too many migrants, too close to Europe, etc. Um And I just think that's part of the story. I'm I'm not trying to say that um, that's all of Brexit voting. Clearly, for example, an awful lot of Brexit voting was just conventional right-wing people who always vote for the Tories or whatever options on the table just voting for Brexit again. But that's one of the reasons why these things were able to make majorities. They wouldn't have been able to become majorities without that extra group of people backing them.
0: Yeah, I mean, I always think around the kind of economics culture debate that it's just going to wait a little bit of time and the historians will come in, not being too disparaging about social scientists, but it's either it's economics or it's culture and then us, the historians will come through and say, obviously, it's a bit of both. You yeah. know, that's invariably yeah, you know. what the history books will say. And long-term factors, short-term. Um, um, one of the things, uh, again, that you talk about in the book, and I think it's really, really important, is uh, and it's really, really important for understanding how anti-fascists should respond, I think, is whether or not... Um, this shift of the modern far right away from traditional fascism, both the kind of trappings of it, but also we now have parties whose lineages don't come out of that immediate post-war period. We have new parties emerging that have different traditions, come from different places. Um, I guess the question is how genuine do you think this, this, this move away from traditional fascism is? There is a tendency for many to think they've all got a swastika hidden under the bed, um, is that the case, do you think? Or do you think actually that what we're seeing is a fundamental break with the, to that tradition?
1: It, it, it's kind of hard to say because you're inviting me to, in sense to make comments about what's going to happen in, in 10 or 20 years. And one of the things that I try and do in the book is open up the possibility and try and think through when and how and why might the current trend be reversed. But, but what we need, the starting point has to be um, for about um, 50 years, the far-right's been moving away from fascism. So, so one of the things I'm trying to, to convey in my book is a sense of the relationship between the far-right and fascism. For, for many, you know, I'm, I'm an activist in my mid-40s, I've been around the, um, the anti-fascist movement for 25 years. When I, when I started, the majority of people who I who allied with, we had no particular conception that there was a far-right beyond fascism. There were only fascists masquerading as something else, um, there wasn't really, um, you know, fascism was almost the entirety or, or actually the totality of the far right. Whereas if you look today, that's really not the pattern. Fascism is still within the far right, but it's not the largest part. It's actually one of the smaller parts. So what I'm trying to do um, with my book is, is and, I, and I don't, I've don't, i not seen anyone else who's, who's ever tried to um, explain this either in an academic or an activist way, but what I'm trying to start is, is to, to encourage people to have a vocabulary to describe how the how fascism is either a growing or a shrinking part of the far right. Um, and essentially, what what I argue is that 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 although um, we've seen the Second World War displaced to some extent by 9/11 in collective memory, and including on the far right, fascism is still a despised tradition in in the world. People still hate fascism, and therefore it's. You know, it's sensible for fascists and people like them to have strategies to move away from it. But if, if you want to talk about what that can mean, there's, there's a stage when that's kind of a presentational thing. Say in the 1960s and 1970s, um, parties would say, "Well, we're not fascists; it's disgusting to call us fascist." But that was all about their attempts to neutralise an attack, and there wasn't much more to it than presentation. There's another stage when you look at the European far right and its different components, and you start to say to yourself, "Well," People have been moving away from fascism now for some time. Has this actually entered into their souls? And maybe one of the case studies in the book that that, that exemplifies that nicely, I think, is the story of what happened with the MSI in Italy, later the AN. There's a point where they're a fascist party, there's a point where they call themselves a post-fascist party, there's a point where they've just been in in parliament and in electoral coalitions for 10 years, and they've behaved for a significant period of time, just like a conventional right-wing party. So in the 1990s, there's a question, you know, how deep has it gone into them? But but what's going on today is, is that we don't just have people presenting themselves as, as not being fascist or people moving away from fascism. But how far has it gone? You know, maybe like the like the national rally in France would be the example today. But we also have another group, which is people who've never really been fascist at all. I mean, if, if you think about you know um, the Brexit Party, the, the, the people around that, none of them have any um, history around the fascist movement. All of them have. Um, trajectories of of trying to um, be opposed to and breaking from fascism, albeit in the limited ways that the far-right ever (laughs) breaks with fascism. So so you've got a much larger group and and a dominant group who are purely electoral. Um, And at that point, it gets really very hard for the people who want to make fascism the the ideal form of the far-right, the typical, normal form of the far-right. It seems to me that they... And because I think that's the dominant approach on the left to these issues, all of us, we, are continually failing to understand the enemy we've got in front of us.
0: I really love the idea of creating a kind of new vocabulary for our movement. Mm -hmm. Because I I fundamentally agree, and I think talking about these modernisation processes of the European far right, it's not uniform, you know. Mm. For the BNP, I, I don't believe that at its core and its soul it ever moved away from kind of being a fascist party. Um, the Front National is more complex, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Someone like Stephen N. or Tommy Robinson, again, you know, the guy's mm-hmm. drawing actually tradition, drawing on traditions of the Second World War on the side of Churchill and, you know, English mm-hmm. traditions there which are, are very different. And I guess part of the issue is a lot of the anti-fascist movement spend a lot of its time trying to shoehorn people into the traditional fascist, anti-fascist mm-hmm. narrative. Um, hence the songs about everyone, you know, everyone's always Hitler, you know. And, the, and I think part of the problem is we're getting to the stage now where that's actually gone beyond just being incorrect and actually can be unhelpful in terms of the wider debate. Um,
1: yeah, look, I, I agree with that, but I do want to say something about um, about Tommy Robinson and then kind of the UKIP in, in the last year or so. I mean, while the whole argument of my book is that the far right, that fascism has been a shrinking and declining part of fascism, I do want to leave open the possibility that that could be reversed. And there was definitely something going on with UKIP about a year ago, which was strange. You know, I'm I'm not talking about particularly in terms of the ideology. There was never a sense that UKIP absorbed the ideology of fascism. Um, But the relationship that Batten was trying to line up between an electoral and a street movement, Mm. that was actually, to some extent, um, functionally and organisationally similar to fascism. It was about saying we want to have a balance between parliamentary and street politics we're never going to allow um parliamentary politics dominant we're, we're always going to be against the state in a way that that's very different from say the brexit party, which just says you know it's elections and that's the only way of doing things so so I don't want to close off altogether the possibility of things moving back in the fascist direction um But I'm just saying that's not where the action's been. And again, Vents and last week really show that quite clearly. Well, well,
0: I guess this is the point you make in the book about um, this being a shrinking or growing element of the far right, conceptualising it in that way, rather than seeing it as a monodirectional thing, that it goes from fascist to non-fascist far right, um, which I think works. And I want to finish up with, um, kind of towards the end of the book, you you literally compel, and that's the word you use, that you compel the left to change its approach. Um, uh, in the face of kind of growing dangers and growing losses, perhaps even. Um, so I'm asking you, what's, what's the answer, David? Um, oh, Jesus. <laughs> um, what are you compelling us to change to? Well, what, what needs to happen, do you think?
1: Well, when I wrote my book about the 70s, I had a really clear model in my head, which was rock and racism And you could point to them because they were there, they did it, and they were exciting. And they, they saw the challenge as being to combat racism and fascism, the whole strand of, of right-wing thinking on the trend of mass culture and as a mass movement involving hundreds of thousands of people. Um, I, I suppose what I'm trying to call for in the book is a similar sort of model today, something that, that, com- that combats the far-right, not just electorally, not just on the streets, but also online, which is, in a sense, the, the cultural terrain which is providing them with activists after activist. And I'm also talking about people trying to do this on a mass scale we really still need people to go out like they do in, say, Liverpool, and they go out and they confront small groups of people from national action or whatever, and demonstrate them. We need that. But we also need, at the same time, we need people to doing mass politics. People to be producing messages and ideas and arguments that hundreds of thousands of people will like, will listen to, will be able to relate to, and which shape much, much larger people, because that much is at stake. Now, you know, in the last year, there are things which have sort of heartened me. You, you start to see people inching towards doing that. There used to be time when we were quite happy when 20,000 people watch things. But we're now talking about small bits of propaganda, which quarter of a million, half a million, a million people have seen. We need to be have a movement of people who are trying to work on that scale. Because... You know, the far right is really, really, really deeply implanted now in European and in British politics. And if we're going to reverse it, we're going to need to see the size of the movement that's so much bigger than anything we've got now.
0: Brilliant. Well, uh, well if that's not a call to join Hope Not Hate, I don't know what it is. <laughs> um, no, um, thank you so much for your time. Um, the book is now out in all good bookshops. I presume it's available on all good websites and some bad ones. Um, uh, it really is worth uh, getting a a hold of this and having a look there's some fascinating stuff in it Um, there's some challenging ideas in it and I think the more people in our movement that read this the better uh, uh, to start a conversation about what's needed what the threat is and and what we can do about it together Um, so thank you for giving up your time again Um, absolute pleasure we'll we'll bring you back on next time you've got another (laughs) one please let us know Uh, um, and uh, that's everything for today but please uh, like and share the podcast it's always great when uh, the more people share it Please leave a comment underneath. Uh, And if you'd like to sign up to the Hope Action Fund um, to help us do the sort of work we do, a lot of the research and and help fund the organisation, please do. Um, That's all available on our social media channels, which will be in the description below, uh, because I've forgotten them. So um, thank you very much for your time, and we'll see you next time.